Welcome to the Investigation Game Podcast, brought to you by Workman Forensics. Welcome to the Investigation Game Podcast. I'm Leah Wheatholter, CEO of Workman Forensics in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Joining me today are Stephen Murray and Javier Pena. As a special agent with the Drug Enforcement Administration, or DEA, Steve Murphy and his partner, Javier Pena, led U.S. efforts in Colombia to target the world's first narco-terrorist and the world's most wanted criminal, Pablo Escobar. Living and working alongside their Colombian National Police counterparts in Colombia, as well as with the elite U.S. military units, their efforts resulted in the dismantlement of the largest and most violent international drug trafficking organization of its time. U.S. and international law enforcement continue to utilize many of the strategies and innovative ideas that were created and implemented by Steve and Javier. Steve began his law enforcement career in 1975 as a police officer in the city of Bluefield, West Virginia. In 1987, Steve became a special agent with the DEA. His agent assignments included Miami, Florida, Bogota, Columbia, and Greensboro, North Carolina. Earning progressive promotions and leadership roles, Steve served two tours in Atlanta, Georgia, where he was assigned to the High Intensity Drug Trafficking Area Office and led the Mobile Enforcement team program. He created and directed the Atlanta Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Force. In 2001, Steve was assigned to the Special Operations Division in Washington, D.C., serving as an assistant special agent in charge and as the executive assistant to the director. In 2009, Steve was promoted to the senior executive service ranks as deputy assistant administrator over DEA's Office of Special Intelligence in Washington, D.C., and later as the special agent in charge or director of the Department of Justice Ostedef Fusion Center, where he remained until his retirement in 2013 after over 37 years in law enforcement. Javier Pena retired from the DEA as a special agent in charge in January 2014 after 30 years of service. His career was highlighted by his volunteering for assignment to the DEA office in Bogota, Colombia in 1988, where then Special Agent Pena and his partner, then Special Agent Steve Murphy, set out to bring down the notorious Medellin drug cartel led by Pablo Escobar. Mr. Pena is regarded as a subject matter expert on the Medellin cartel and has delivered more than 100 presentations on the cartel, including numerous rare photos of original events during the rise and fall of the cartel. His presentations feature the details of his years spent trying to bring Escobar to justice and stop the carnage of the Medellin cartel. Pena has also appeared in television documentaries and on national news programs, as well as in the Latin media. Following retirement, Steve started Murphy Consultants, LLC. He specializes in keynote speaking and training. Steve and Javier also started a second company, DEA Narcos LLC, which focuses on name brand marketing and merchandise sales associated with DEA Narcos. Thank you for joining me today, Steve and Javier. Glad to be here. Thank you, Leah. Me too. Thank you. So obviously we cannot have the two of you on the show and not talk about Pablo Escobar. But before we dive into that, who is that what you just said? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Right. So, I mean, we definitely have to talk about that. We have to talk about the show Narcos. But before we dive into that, I'd like to learn a little more about how the two of you became investigators and if it was something you always planned to do or kind of stumbled into it. So we can start with you, Steve. Oh, thank you, Leah. Um, in 1975, started as a small town uniform police officer in a little town called Bluefield, West Virginia. Was worked uniform for six years, then transferred over to become a railroad police officer in Norfolk, Virginia, uh, which with the company is now Norfolk Southern Railway. Um, and quite honestly, did that for the money because it paid much better than the city paid. You know, a small town police department paid. Did that for five and a half years, but realized that that wasn't there wasn't a lot of investigating there. You know, they 
there are some great investigators in the railroad police, but it just wasn't me. And, and a friend of mine that was a railroad police officer introduced me to DEA. He had worked on a DEA task force out of Roanoke, Virginia for a while. And I just really got interested in that and uh, applied for DEA. It took me two years to get the job. First post was uh, Miami, Florida in 1987. Talk about a fish out of water and, <laughs> you know, being very naive, I was. And, and an interesting story, The before I went to DEA, the most powder cocaine I'd ever seen at one time was two ounces, just a, a little baggie. And the first case I got to work on undercover at, with DEA in Miami, we went to the Turks and Caicos Islands and picked up 440 kilograms of cocaine. Oh my so I went, from, I went from two ounces to 880 pounds of coke. And I like to tell people I became addicted to coke at that point, just in a different way. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. So did you always think you would be in law enforcement though, before you started off as a police officer? Since I was about 10 years old, I really not, never wanted to do anything else other than being a cop. And, uh, I have to say I enjoyed being a uniform cop. I would not enjoy it today, <laughs> but uh, DEA turned out to be a place that was just, it was like a dream come true. Uh, you know, you get to travel the world, you get to work high level cases. Uh, you know, the case that Javier and I got to work together has developed into a partnership that started in 1991 and here we are in 2021 and we're still partners today. Yeah, so cool, so cool. So about you, Javier? Yeah, I, I became a sheriff's uh, deputy in Laredo, Texas, which is you know on the border in 1977. And with me, it's all like been luck and timing and accidents. You know, uh, I was doing an internship uh, at the prison unit. I was in college. And, uh, you know, I got interested, and then all of a sudden, Sheriff's Department, Laredo was hiring, I applied, got accepted, and it was the best of both worlds. I was living with my grandparents, which, as you know, I had it made, home-cooked meals, and uh, I worked uh, at the Sheriff's Office. I had the night shift, and uh, I'd get off at work at 7 a.m., go shower, and hit the classes again till about noon. I know a lot of people out there have done that, right? Work and mm -hmm. go to school. So I did the sheriff's office for about seven years. And for me, I just wanted to see the world. I wanted to get out of Laredo. You know, it's a small town. I come from a place called the uh, little town, Hebronville, 5,000 population. It's also close to Laredo. So anyway, my experience. And then uh, when I got selected uh, to DEA, I get sent to Austin, Texas. And if you, you know a little bit about Austin, right? It's a great town and it was the beginning of the music industry. I mean, I was seeing all sorts of great bands in Austin. Uh, it was, I mean, I, I was lucky I got Austin. And then, you know, I just wanted to go see how the, uh, the big traffickers worked. So that's why I put in for, and I put in for Mexico. I did not put in for Colombia. So there was a mistake in the paperwork. And then I got selected to go to Bogota not wanting to go there, but I didn't fight it. My boss says, you want to fight it? I said, nah, let, let me go to Bogota. So uh, I got to Bogota in uh, 1988. And then later on, I met Steve. And uh, like Steve said, we were assigned the Pablo Escobar case, which I'm sure we'll talk about, right, in a little bit. <laughs> yes, yes, definitely we have to. Well, that's really cool. I just... Um, I love finding out how, you know, some people kind of stumble into investigation. I'm, it sounds like I'm kind of like you guys, I, from the time I was 12 years old, I was pretty decided that I was going to be an investigator. I didn't know what that would look like, but now that's what I do too. So, so on this podcast, we like to talk about investigations as a whole, which is why, you know, we talk more than just about fraud or forensic accounting, although we talk about that too. So I like to ask people about their investigative processes, techniques, tools. And so I'm curious, what are some of the investigative skills 
you feel you learned, especially from the DEA that you used most often in your investigations that you kind of kept, you know, you'd rely on it on maybe every case or a lot of your cases? Well, for me, um, I had never really worked a lot with informants uh, as a uniformed police officer or as as uh, a railroad police officer. You did have snitches on the street that would, you know, give you information and things like that, but nothing like the level that you do with, you know, working with DEA, not to mention the amount of money that you were able to pay informants. You could actually pay them money and not pull 20 bucks out of your pocket mm-hmm. like you do as a street cop, you know. Um, and, it, and we got an introduction to uh, intercepting telephone communications. Uh, I did not do that in Miami. We were so busy with uh, importation cases, you know, season my gosh, it was it was the late 1980s, and it, if you couldn't make a drug case in South Florida, you need to find a different occupation. It was just it was literally falling out of the sky and washing up on the beaches. So that was, I guess, those were the two big things. Uh, but you also become very adept at, at surveillance uh, because you're on the street every day. If you're making cases, you're out on the street every day doing surveillance, either on the bad guys or trying to follow up on information. And you know what? If you had a down day, sometimes you'd go do surveillance on your informants and find out what they were up to because you needed, mm-hmm. you know, you needed their credibility to get them into court. So. Uh, I'll be honest with you. I was like a kid in a candy store when I joined DEA. I I loved it. I did it for 26 years. Never looked back. Wouldn't trade it for anything. So I have a question about informants. Is there a primary motivation or is it kind of all across the board? What would motivate an informant? It's it's across the board. And that's one of the first things you have to determine when you're uh you know, talking to a potential informant, what is his motivation? Is he doing it to work off a beef, a charge against him? Is he doing it to make money? Is he doing it to take the competition out? Is he doing it to get revenge at somebody? You know, there's a a variety of different reasons. And that's one of the first things you really have to establish. And you need to do a little bit of investigative work on that just so you can cooperate because it'll, it helps you know, uh, it sounds a little far, but it, it, I mean, a little strange, but it no, it helps you to know how far you can push that informant to get what you need. Mm. You know, if he's working off charges, you can push a lot harder. Uh, if you know he's working just strictly for money, you know, like a mercenary, well, there's there's other ways that you handle that. So each situation can be rather unique. Yeah, interesting. In fraud investigations, I feel like the informants are typically whistleblowers, and the one there's kind of a primary motivation. I've scene and it's usually that they've been cut out of the deal so that's why i asked that question revenge. <laughs> when revenge. they've been cut out of the scheme that's when they decide you know i think i'm going to report this to the owner yeah yeah oh uh, what about you javier what whenever you were working cases is are there any skills techniques tools that you relied on in a lot of your cases yeah and i'm going to echo what steve said i and the only and just to further with informants because you know i mean we do work a lot with informants you, you have to corroborate the information you have to go out there and and make sure you know the first thing is is the guy lying or the guy or girl are they lying uh so once you can establish that that person is telling the truth and is knows what's going on then it's a different ball game you know i, I like to use sometimes you know out of uh 10 uh, possible informants Three are going to be good. The rest are not, you know, and it's uh, and, and in Colombia, the experience we gathered with informants was, wow, it was uh, just an eye opener. You know, a lot would read the paper. Then they'd come in and they would tell you what's in the newspaper, you know. Uh, but then, uh, you know what, the person that's uh, working uh, for money 
and a lot of it is is that motivation that you all have been talking about. What's the motivation of that informant? Is it a revenge? Is it, uh, you know, I got cut out of a deal, uh, the, the money, working off of beef? But the, the, the main thing you have to remember is that informants will work for you and they'll work against you. You know, I mean, they may be giving you information. Hey, there's a load coming in through this side of the country while they're running their own loads through the other side. And then the other one is, is when they get caught, it's like, hey, I'm working for Javier Pena. I'm, you know, I'm, uh, oh, that's <laughs> yeah. a big one. It was, well, you know, it was not, uh, oh, it was not righteous. And we would see that a lot. So uh, you, you just got to be careful. But they are, you need that information and you need to corroborate. But, you know, and like Steve mentioned, the Title Three, the telephone intercepts. I mean, you know, we used to say, you know what, informants lie, telephones do not. <laughs> yeah, so it's just, corroborate as much as you can. Yeah, it's interesting whenever we're working a fraud case, you know, we might have somebody informing like a whistleblower, but then right. one of the things that my team and I do is we are always looking for what's the best data source. And so it's kind of equivalent to what you're talking about, those wiretaps, if you can get that, I mean, that's an excellent data source to corroborate. I am curious, what would you, Javier, what would you be looking for if you do surveillance on your informants? You know what, you're, you're looking to see, make sure that they're telling you the truth. That's the main thing that they're, you know, when you're, you may be surveilling them and he's meeting with other traffickers, they're working out their own deal and you do not know anything about it so that's a that's a red uh, red flag uh, there so it's and also and I'm glad you brought up you know what one of the parts that we we rely on a lot which people do not sometimes get it is the use of analytical information the analysis you know what I'm talking about right I mean there's all sorts of sources where you can analyze with us you and I had it had it made because we had analysts you know, assigned to us, intelligence analysts, and you give them a phone number and they're going to do the the background on that phone number. It's like, wow, look at all this information on that person, on associates. So that's one of the things, you know, I, I know there's some investigators out there, but use all the an analytical means possible in verifying and furthering that inf that information. Yeah, for sure. I, I'm a big fan of analytics, but then also talking to people. And so that's kind of what yeah. I feel like you're describing. You right. can't just use data, but you can't also just rely on what people are saying and to build to build right. a great case. Right, right. And that's one of the best partnerships we've ever seen is when you get an agent and an analyst that can get along, that they'll complement each other. You know, you can't it's hard to beat that team because you've got it's like we say, they've got the brains, we've got the brawn. There you go. There you go. Throughout your career, whenever you would tell people that you were working for the DEA or even now when you tell your story, what do you think is a misconception about DEA, DEA, DEA investigations that maybe the general public or even victims who have been involved might have about the DEA? Well, for me, it's a lot of people don't understand what DEA does. They think that we're out, you know, trying to chase people that are smoking weed and you know, that's probably the biggest misconception I've seen is is that's never been DEA's mission. You know, we don't go after the users. We go after the manufacturers and the distributors and, you know, the gatekeepers and the money launderers and, and, and all facets of a criminal organization. Uh, <laughs> quite honestly, <laughs> I don't care if you smoke weed or not. That's up to you. you know? uh, I guess that's the biggest misconception I can think of. But, you know, DEA's 
mission is to go after the biggest narcotics traffickers in the world that have a detrimental effect on the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, people say, well, are you having a positive impact? Well, we're not having a negative impact. You know, is, is our drugs still available? Of course they are. Yeah. You know, but you just, <laughs> you can't ignore the violence and the threat that goes along with uh, narcotics trafficking. Just think if, if DEA wasn't there and there wasn't, a, you know, if the other law enforcement organizations weren't addressing the narcotics issues, look at, uh, look at how much violence, additional violence there would be here in the United States because of that. Yeah. Interesting. What about you, Javier? Yeah. And sometimes you get that from other people, that image that, you know, we're cowboys out there. That's what, you know, that like in the movies, oh, deep undercover, you're, you're snorting dope, you're using all sorts of, you know, illegal methods, uh, beating up people. You know what? If, if we, we're not about that, that's that's just a small percentage of our of our investigation is the undercover world. I mean, yes, we do it, and uh, uh, of course, but you know, we have a lot of safeguards. For example, if I'm negotiating with a trafficker at a bar, and I'm going to have 10 other agents there with me doing, you know, look, watching out for me. We don't test it like in the movies. All right, let me put it up my nose and let me put it in my tongue, right? You know, like you see in the movies, right. don't do that. Right. So there's a lot of people, that's a, that's funny, they think, and they think we got the, you know, the fancy cars, we're living in high dollar penthouses, partying with the traffickers, you know, that's not the case. So uh, ours is, like Steve said, you know, we go after the, the, the organization. Our job is to dismantle, I call it the biggest and baddest traffickers out there. You know, and uh, mm -hmm. we try to dismantle from top to bottom, bottom to top. Yeah, that's awesome. So when you two were assigned to Bogota, was that a temporary duty duty assignment type thing? Like how are U.S. federal agents able to go and work a case in Colombia? Well, the um, it's it's we call it a permanent change of station, a PCS move. Okay. So uh, it's really not a TDY, but uh, depending on where you're going, you know, if it's a danger post like Bogota was back then, or, you know, most of the, the offices in Mexico and, and South America were, um, it was a two-year assignment. Other places, it's a three-year assignment. Um, so, you you know, most places when it's a three-year assignment, you can move your family, your wife, your children, or if you're a female, your husband. Uh, for us, we weren't allowed to have dependents. We could take a spouse, but we couldn't take children. Uh, but, you know, on the other side of that coin is you got danger pay, you got hazard duty pay, you got increased post-differential. <laughs> it was uh, it was very lucrative from a law enforcement standpoint because, you know, I mean, you don't go into law enforcement for the money. <laughs> right. You get rich as a cop, you know, not an honest cop anyway. So, um, but it was here in the United States with DEA, you could be transferred anywhere in the United States, but to be transferred overseas, you had had to volunteer. You had to raise your hand. They just won't arbitrarily send you somewhere, although they might mm -hmm. like to. Sometimes they won't. <laughs> so did they have a, and Javier, maybe a question for you. Did they have like a relationship with Colombian law enforcement to have you guys there? Is that how that works? Yes, yeah, of course. And, and you know what? We, we're there as liaison. You know what? We do not have any authority. We don't have arrest authorities like we do in the U.S. So you're there as a liaison position. So when when we get to Colombia and uh, the the first search, we call it, we had an informal task force, not like the one that Steve and I participated in after Pablo Escobar's escape. So we had a, a group of guys that they had been handpicked from Bogota. They were living in Medellin, and I remember I would go at this time like for two nights. That's all I was allowed to stay because, like I said, 
the car bombs, the assassinations. So I'd meet, we'd exchange information. We, you know, I mean, and there was a lot of information coming in from the U.S. Uh, at the point at this time against Pablo Escobar. So we would exchange great information and we started working, uh, knowing who Pablo Escobar was because we were weak when we first started working against him. We did not know that much about him. And if you look at the history, Pablo Escobar in the early 80s was coming into the U.S. Nobody knew who that that powerful position was. But, you know, he had a house in Miami. And uh, it's not until, like I said, I call it the mid to late 80s when really we started learning who Pablo Escobar was because of the violence. So back to the question, we we were working with uh, our local counterparts, which were great cops in Colombia. And, I'm, you know, we'll talk about this in a little bit, but they they did a great job and we established great uh, uh, friendship with them. So it was basically they trusted us and we trusted them. Well, before we jump into the big story, of the podcast. Let's just take a quick break and we'll be right back. Hi, everyone. I'm happy to have Matt Mulcini and Matt Killam from the ACFE South Florida and Twin Cities chapters. They are joining me today to tell us more about an event that's happening on November 4th. So Matt, can you please tell us about the event? Hopefully, I would love to. Our, our chapters are hosting an online event with speaker Stephen Murphy and Javier Pena on how they took down Pablo Escobar. Uh, also, Michael Brett Hood will be opening for them with a presentation on advanced money laundering. Well, that sounds like an amazing event. Matt, could you tell us some more details? The event will take place on November 4th from 12 p.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, the cost of the event is $90 for ACFE members and $105 for non-members. Attendees will receive five CPEs for attending the event. I gotta tell you, after talking to these guys, preparing this podcast episode, this is going to be an exceptional event and I plan to attend myself. So Matt, how can people register? Yep, everyone can register on our South Florida website. Uh, please go to uh, acfesouthflorida.org uh, and look for the event uh, for November 4th. Welcome back to my conversation with Steve and Javier. So, okay, we have to jump into the story. And so um, I don't know if which one of you might want to just kind of give an overview of the case uh, as well. But I, I'm really curious about how do you even start an investigation into something like this case with Pablo Escobar? Pablo Escobar, and, and as, as we all know, and uh, you mentioned how to describe uh Pablo Escobar, we, we call him the inventor of narco-terrorism. He was responsible for 80% of the cocaine that was reaching the world. And one thing we try to tell our audiences is that we had never encountered an organization, a person like Pablo Escobar, like that before. And it was because of the violence that he was using. We weren't used to this. Then we saw the emergence of the famous or the deadly, I should say, the deadly car bombs that Pablo Escobar was placing, you know, 10 to 15 on a daily basis. So we saw a lot of innocent people get killed. And like I said earlier, then we started realizing that Pablo Escobar had an empire that we had never seen. Uh, 80% of the cocaine reaching the world was sent by Pablo Escobar. Miami was his base. There's a lot of money that was being spent in uh, Miami. We 
we like to uh, uh, equate Miami. Remember the Scarface movie? I mean, when I, we say Scarface, a lot of people have watched it. That was what's mm -hmm. going on in, in Miami at this time, mm -hmm. the violence, the money. But it, it, it was a, a battle. It was a fight. It was a search for Pablo Escobar. But we never realized how how major, how violent, and how, uh, like I said, uh, the terrorism that he had, and that was our obstacle, trying to overcome uh, that terrorism from Pablo Escobar. So with this violence, was he terrorized, like, was he using it to keep his organization working, kind of like a mob, you know, like the mafia would, or was he targeting uh, out, people outside of his organization as well? What made his violence, I guess, so extreme? Well, it was against anybody, um, you know, primarily his competition. You know, the, believe it or not, at one point, Pablo got along with the Rodrigo Soruela brothers in Cali. But then there's, a, you know, it's kind of like the Hatfield-McCoy myths here, you know, the feud here in the United States. There's several different reasons that people say led to the disconnect between the two organizations. But Pablo was the kind of guy that, you know, his – and this is what uh, Javier and I believe is that his power and his wealth kind of went to his head and he felt invincible. And so he got to the point where he was used to telling you, Leah, this is what I want you to do. This is what you're going to do. And then when you don't do it, they kill you. Well, you know, that message gets out <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and it's, and it's all about him. It's not about anything else. It's about, you know, he wanted to run Well, he did run for Congress actually got elected as an alternate. And then that guy stepped down and, you know, he took his place. Didn't last very long. He got booted out because of uh, the uh, minister of justice down there who paid for it with his life, Rodrigo Lara Bonilla. Um, the other thing is he wanted to run for president. And in his mind, it certainly seems like he thought he was the God of Columbia, you know, and that, Everybody adored him. His ego was completely out of control. Once Javier and I got in his prison and started looking at some of the letters that were people were writing him or from around the world, you could tell, you know, there's, there's a lot of sick people that look at that and think that's something to look up to. You know, we even see it on our social media sites. We get some really nasty messages from some people. We've got, you know, some people want to kill us. Some people still want to see us die. Uh, some people just, you know, want to tout the praises of Pablo Escobar. And I'm just thinking, could you think of anything stupider to say than that? You know, I mean, do a little research and find out this guy's nothing but a mass murderer. Like Javier said, he's the world's first narco terrorist. You know, he wasn't a narcotics trafficker. He was a terrorist. Yeah. He came up with a term called plata or plomo. You want a bullet or you want some money? And basically how that worked, and I saw it when uh, it was first initiated, a couple of sicarios, assassins, walked into the judge's office in Medellin and said, Judge, we're being sent by Mr. Pablo Escobar. And in this briefcase, sir, there's $100,000. Judge, all you have to do is drop the charges against our boss, Pablo Escobar. This money is here. So judge kicked him out. Well, the next day, they killed the judge, his wife, mm -hmm. and his kids. So that was the attitude from Pablo Escobar. Plata, very famous saying, plata or plomo, bullet, or you want some money. And then, like I said, I don't know, just the car bombs always take out, assassinations, the kidnappings. Then he had bounties on police officers. Have you ever heard of putting bounties on police officers? Uh, so all the assassins, and that's another thing when we talk to people we missed is 
we did not know how to handle the Sicarios, assassins. You know, Escobar at his, at his height had about 500 assassins, Sicarios working for him, and their allegiance was to kill or die uh, for Pablo Escobar. So how do you combat, uh, you know, this? So we learned a lot. Uh, obviously, uh, we weren't used to this type of a, of a war, and you, but you know, you you have to adapt and and, and learn and, and try to uh, stay on top of it. You know, how did he get so out of control? Was it kind of a slow rise? Um, I mean, how did it get to the point where Colombian officials, law enforcement? I mean, it, it just sounds like it got completely out of control. Well, if you look at the history of Colombia, it's it's one of the most beautiful places in the world. Javier and I love the place. I mean, we mm-hmm. really do. We always uh, give it credit. We give credit to the Colombian National Police for what went on down there. How they address the situation. But if you go back and look at their history, it has an extremely violent history. You know, there's even one part of their history they call La Violencia, the violent times. So, and if you read some of the books and you believe them about Escobar and how he grew up, you know, he's, his family saw the violence where these band of marauders, vigilantes, whatever you call them, would come through with machetes and kick your door open in the middle of the night and kill people. And, you know, he saw that. But at a young age, I think he also saw that he had an opportunity to make some money in cocaine. He started out as a petty thief. You know, he was stealing hubcaps off of cars. He was stealing gravestones out of the, out of the cemeteries. You know, <laughs> real admirable occupation there. But he got involved when, in, a, in a small cocaine deal and realized how much money he could make off of it. So he went and killed the guy and took his spot. You know, so it's, uh, I think, probably when he saw that there was no retribution for murder, you know, it just continued from there. It's, sure. uh, um, it really is a different world down there. I, you know, I went down very naive and, and thank the good Lord I had Javier there, to, you know, to kind of look out for me when I first got started. But it was, it's very, very different down there. And yet to that point, you, you mentioned how the government, I mean, it's, it's, uh, and you know what, and this is history. When uh, Pablo Escobar is killing as many people as possible, the car bombs, assassination, I mean, it's, uh, if you talk to anybody who lived in this time in Colombia, they'll tell you, I mean, it, it was just the uh, indiscriminate use of the bombs, the killings. So it, it got to the point when Pablo Escobar's famous surrender, because we get asked, what? How did he work out that surrender? We call it the deal of a lifetime. Well, Colombia was tired of all their of all the killings, of all the bombs, of all it was people couldn't go out on weekends, mothers with their kids come straight home. Uh it, it was just out of control. So that violence is what triggered Pablo Escobar when he surrendered was the deal of a lifetime. Call up the government and said, basically, I'm willing to stop my bombing campaign and willing to self-surrender. What are you, I mean, if you're part of the government, what are you going to say? Of course, right? I mean, wow, this guy's going to surrender. We're going to, the killings will stop. And he surrendered. The killings uh, did stop. The bombing stopped. It was peaceful. So uh, obviously we could talk about hours on this, but, uh, but you know, it's, uh, it's part of, Part of history, what we call it, you know, the surrender. So I, so I have to ask when he, because I think listeners, if they don't know the story, are, are going to want to know um, what kind of deal was he trying to work with the surrender? Because it doesn't sound like a guy who doesn't do anything that there's not something in it for himself. So, well, <laughs> there were some stipulations to his surrender, <laughs> you know, because they were, you know, the government was elated um, when he agreed to surrender, you know, and it's so. 
here's the stipulations. He came in, he said, you know, first of all, I will build my own prison because I don't want the citizens of Columbia to have to bear that tax burden. And the government said, okay, you know, and then he said, well, I'm going to hire my own guards up there because again, I can afford to pay them and, you know, uh, don't want the, the citizens to have to bear that burden as well. And the government said, okay. And he, then he said, well, I'm going to handpick my fellow prisoners. There's only going to be thir 13 and me, you know, and he had, uh, his brother was one of those. It was his most trusted associates, you know, people he felt that would protect him, that were willing to die for him. And that's, you know, that's exactly what he got in there. Uh, the government said, okay. And then he said, well, the, you know what? I don't want any good guys. The Gringos, the Columbia National Police, Columbia Military cannot come within two miles of the perimeter of our prison because I, you know, I'm worried about them trying to kidnap me and, and extract me to the United States. And I have this deal with you, the government of Columbia. And the government said, okay. And part of that deal was he only got five years in prison. Now for pleading guilty to one crime that he got to select, you know, and I think it was unwittingly participating in the transportation of 300 kilos of coke or some crap like that. He all other crimes, including murder, he was absolved of. So, and then lastly, there were no stipulations to take any of his assets. So, you know, Forbes magazine uh, rated him as the sixth richest man in the world, seventh richest man in the world, several years in a row, with an estimated wealth of between eight and thirty billion dollars. So if, you know, what we found out later when we got to prison, Javier and I were up there the very next day after he escaped, what we saw was a country club. It wasn't a prison. It was a jokes what it was. We also learned, you know, he was coming and going from that prison as he pleased. He would go spend the night with his wife and children. He'd go to restaurants. He'd go to soccer games. I, he just went wherever he wanted to, you know. So um, in those kind of conditions, and then you get to keep the $30 billion, I think I could have probably stood on my head for maybe five years and <laughs> be a free man. <laughs> right. It's just so, uh, it's outrageously ridiculous. And did, during those five years, did all the killing and car bombing and all of that, did it stop? Yeah, it, it stopped. Oh, yeah, no more car bombs. People were were coming out again. Uh, but what happened is, and real quick, uh, while he was in prison, he was still doing, you know, his drug distribution. Then he killed two important members of his organization uh, inside the prison, which is what prompted Governor Columbia to say, hey, no more. We're going to move him. And that's the famous escape. And when Steve talked about we're there the very next day, and you know, like we, like Steve said, it, it was a farce. It was a country club uh, environment inside. However, that escape led us to another chance of getting Pablo Escobar, which is what uh, we, uh, uh, Steve and I moved in. We at full-time basis into Medellin at the police station. We formed a search block. We were there 24 hours a day and uh, it took us 18 months. But you know what? We were happy, to be honest, when he escaped. Why? Because it was giving us another chance to uh, to get him. You know, and Lee, I'd like to point out just one thing. There's, there's actually one of us here on this podcast that uh, spent the night sleeping in Pablo Escobar's bed at the prison. It wasn't me. So. <laughs> it, and real quick, yeah, it was a bed from the uh, colonel from the National Police. Oh, yeah, they were making fun of me. And of course, I changed the sheets. But and, and you know what? It, it's, it's, it's funny, but on the serious note, I'll never forget, he had the statue of the Virgin Mary, you know, on the ceiling of his bedroom. So, I mean, I'm killing people and I'm still, anyway, I'm not going to, you know, but 
that's that was Pablo Escobar. Interesting, interesting. Yeah. So then his escape, I guess, gave you the opportunity catch him and to make sure that he wasn't able to create another country club just to escape out of, right? <laughs> like, yeah, no, nah, it's and, and like I said, we are, there's a whole we've like I said we've written a book on this, you know, but it was the the, the second part of the searches very interesting and exciting and it just we talk about our different techniques that we use we even came up with a reward for Pablo Escobar from the US was five million dollars which was helping a lot so it's it's a lot of different techniques but one of the main techniques or what I like to tell people the law enforcement especially it was we were using uh, we were taking down his organization in the United States in Europe and in Colombia. So it was simultaneous going after everybody and anybody that worked for Pablo Escobar, which is one of the strategies that, that was working, you know. Uh, so uh, we employed that method. Gosh, we could keep talking forever. I'm like reining in some questions right now so that we so that I can ask about this too, because I want to talk about um, how did your the show Narcos on Netflix come about? Well, you know, Javier lives in Texas, and, and well, at the time, he was the SAC in uh, Houston, and I was the SAC at the Osadef Fusion Center in D.C., and uh, a friend of mine up here is, is uh, I still live in Northern Virginia, a friend of mine is a, uh, an award-winning producer on a small scale, and he introduced me to two producers that seemed like they were interested in doing something with the Escobar story, and, and you know, in the government, you can't make money on the side, so if you're working as an agent, you know, you can't have a second income. But we went, I went and talked to both uh, producers and they both had personal agendas. It wasn't about telling the true story at all. You know, one guy wanted to take our, our story and make a right wing political statement out of it. And that's not what we were about. And so Javier and I discussed it and we said, you know what? Nobody really cares about this story. It's been too long. Nobody's, you know, that's a way in the past. Well, then uh, one day in 2013, I get a phone call in February of 13 from a retired Marine that Javier and I used to work with down in Columbia. Hadn't talked to the guy in over 20 years, and, and he told us, well, there's a producer in Hollywood who wants to talk to you guys. And so I kind of blew him. I said, look, thanks, but no thanks. You know, we're not interested. And, and he kind of tuned me up on the phone. I don't know if you know any retired Marines, but they can be colorful with their language at times. And uh, finally, I'm like, okay, 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 I'll call the guy, you know. <laughs> And, and Javier and I are doing this together and, and I uh, called this guy named Eric Newman. He's the creator of Narcos. And, and he gave me his little spiel on the phone. I turned him down and I know he about fell out of his chair because nobody out there turns anything down in Hollywood. It's, it's Javier and I saw how people would sell their souls out there for, you know, to be on a show. So anyway, uh, make a real long story short, he flew to Washington with two writers. I met him for dinner uh, we had some fun and our personalities kind of clicked. And as we're leaving the restaurant, he asked me, so why are you and Javier so hesitant to tell your story? And we said, the last thing we want is that anybody would ever glorify a murder, a mass murderer like Pablo Escobar. And he promised us that night, I'll never do that. He's lived up to his word all this, all these years later. So I, I had that dinner in March and Javier and I are both on board. Uh, in May, we signed contracts, uh, not knowing it was Netflix, but we signed contracts with a production company. In June, at the end of June, I retired from DEA after thir almost 38 years as a police officer. And in July, Javier and I were sitting in Hollywood in a writer's room starting to write Narcos. 
that's how it came about. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, so, so you actually sat down with the writers and told them the story and then they, yeah, we told them them, uh, it was funny because we, you know, we're not Hollywood people. So we were telling them the facts, right? Just the facts, ma'am, you know, uh, <laughs> them the truth. And then, uh, all of a sudden, so they would send you the script. So, after a, an episode. So we would see the script. I'd call Steve, Steve, what the hell is this? This didn't happen. <laughs> so we don't know Hollywood. So we called and the, you know, the producer very politely says, yeah, there's, well, we are using artistic uh, licenses. So <laughs> artistic license means a lot. That it basically, they can change the story and whatever, however they want to change it. So, but you know what, when it came out, I, I didn't think people were going to watch it. In fact, Steve and I had a conversation. We called each other, I think, after the first show. Wow, no one's going to watch this. Wow, were we surprised. After a while, you know, the story had a worldwide appeal. It was, everybody was watching it. They were excited. You know, it was, we never expected it. So then all of yeah. a sudden, there's another series comes up. You know, Pablo Escobar was done in, uh, what, 20 shows, right, Steve? Yep, 20 episodes. Yeah, and 10 are one season, so they signed it up. And uh, uh, Steve has a good anecdote with the, you know, you want to mention that, Steve? The, <laughs> the number two Which guy? The number two guy about the ratings? Oh, yeah, so we're... Yeah. Um, the premiere of season two, they invited Javier and our spouses out, Javier and I and our spouses out to Hollywood for the premiere. And, you know, neither one of us have ever been through that. We're small town country boys and, and it was really exciting. And they're paying all your airfare and your hotel and they pick you up in limos and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, it was really exciting to go. So at, afterwards there's a party. And so we go over there and the actors that played us are there and the actor that played Escobar and a lot of the actors from the series are there. And, and they are such nice people. I mean, I, we were shocked. You know, you you would think they might be a little snotty because of who they are, but you know, Pedro Pascal is probably the best known actor of the Narco series, and just was so personable. But anyway, so we're there, and, and I don't drink alcohol, and, and but you know, I still go to parties and I hang out to bars with the guys, and we're in there, and I walked up to this the number two guy on Netflix, and I said, "Hey, so you know," and he was being very nice, and I said. Tell us the truth now. How successful is Narcos? Oh, you know, everything's a secret with Narcos. We don't discuss that openly, you know, but I just tell you it's a good show. And so I gave him another 30 minutes and he'd had several more drinks. And I walked up to him and I said, so can you tell me anything about Narcos? He said, all right, don't pass this along. He said, you ever heard of that show we do called, uh, uh, I just forgot. House of Cards. House of Cards. Everybody's heard of House of Cards. He said, that's our number one show. Narcos is knocking on the door. That's awesome. And, you know, I think last year I saw an article or maybe earlier this year uh, where Narcos was the is the is the fourth time fourth all time most viewed original content series that Netflix put out. That's pretty good. That's awesome. Yeah. And and for the listeners out there, I drink for Steve. So when we go out (laughs) drinking, I got to drink his share. So good. Good. Just making sure. Just keeping it it even. I'm I'm a designated driver. I get him home. (laughs) Y'all are a great team, right? That's what what we know. Y'all are a great team. Okay. So clearly the show did take some artistic liberties or licenses, whatever, with the story. But if somebody wants to know the facts, you guys have at least one book, right? A couple books? Yeah, we wrote a book, Manhunters, How We Took Down Pablo Escobar. It is absolute truth. Um, there's another book out there that's very popular. It came out several years before ours did that the first his, the first part of the book historically is accurate. The second part 
is a lot of suppositions were made uh, in the writing of the book. And I don't want to talk bad about the author. Uh, he was a friend of ours. But, I mean, our, the book also covers our careers, you know, how we grew up, how we got into law enforcement, some other cases we worked on. Javier will tell you about having a gun stuck in his ear, you know, working undercover. Uh, it's, I, again, we didn't think that would be a, a very popular either, but I, I think we're in, uh, I think we're in 18 or 19 different countries now. Wow. Book. So, and that, that led to our world speaking tour. So, you know, pre-COVID, the first four years, we were averaging 75 shows a year around the world. You know, we've done two UK tours. We did a Northern European tour. We've been to Australia and New Zealand twice. Uh, we've been on every continent in the, in the world except for Africa and, and Antarctica. And we were scheduled to go to Africa the first year of COVID. Of course, you know, we all know what happened there. But uh, it's slowly starting to pick up. And it's, you know... <laughs> Never in a million years did we think we'd be doing something like this in retirement. <laughs> well, I mean, Javier, you said you wanted to see the world. So did you think it would be this way? I sure did. And another thing about the book, it's based on truth and it's based on history. What yep. really occurred out there. And, uh, uh, and like I said, we always had all our shows as the real heroes of war in all of this were the Columbia National Police. They took their country back from Pablo Escobar, who killed thousands and thousands of innocent people. And we also, as Steve mentioned earlier, Colombia's a great country. Visit, it's great people. It's just a beautiful country, and it's safe right now. Uh, but it's just, it's part of history, and it really happened. <laughs> so we're going to make sure to link to your website where people can download all different kinds of merchandise and your book. Uh, but then you've also started a podcast recently. We have. We just, uh, end of June, we started Game of Crimes. Uh, kind of sounds like Game of Thrones, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, our, and our throne, which is made out of weapons, might look like the throne out of Game of Thrones. But oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it's, long form, it's a long form podcast, so our episodes can't go into two parts that we release the same week. Uh, I think the shortest one we've had so up so far is uh, an hour and a half, hour and 45 minutes, but every show we host a guest. So what we do is we bring in the actual investigators who participated in some of the biggest crimes committed, not just in the United States, but around the world. Um, and in addition to that, it's not only good people. We actually bring on some bad people. So if you remember, if you ever saw the movie Blow with Johnny Depp, um, that was Johnny Depp portrayed a guy named George Jung. We, our second episode that came out was with George Jung, who passed away this past May. Rest in peace. Uh, so we think we got the last interview with George. Uh, we've got a former money laundering lined up for an interview. We've got a, a, a Cuban-American who spent 25 years moving cocaine for all the cartels in Colombia got caught with 9,000 kilos coming out of Venezuela. He'll be on the show. We've got a, a man who was uh, a Lieutenant with Ariano Felix organization in Tijuana. Um, we're trying to get, I, I'm not going to mention his name, uh, but if we do get this guy, he was uh, an original member of the Medellin cartel. Uh, he's out of prison now he has cancer and he's, he's dying. So, you know, we're trying to respect his wishes, but at the same time we're negotiating with his attorney to try to get him on the show. So uh, it's a, it's fun. You know, we're going to have Ed Davis, who was the commissioner of the Boston police during the Boston marathon bombing. 
uh, Dave Reichert, who was the lead investigator in the uh, Green River serial murder case. I mean, it just keeps going on and on. It's it's amazing. And the whole point is to show the world the truth about what goes on in law enforcement. You know, it's it's not one of these cases where people read a little history about a crime and then get on there and report it. Um, so, we, you know, we bring the real people on there. Yeah. Wow. This is going to coming firsthand from the investigators. So cool. We'll make sure to link to that podcast as well, because I know that our, that our listeners are really going to be interested in that. A really unique taste. I mean, there's a lot of true crime fans, but to listen to the investigator who investigated, I think it's so valuable. I mean, I always learned something, even just asking these questions like, oh, I hadn't thought about doing surveillance to check this and this. So, I, you know, you've already yeah. given me ideas just in talking about this and I don't investigate drug deals. <laughs> so, um, so it's just always a pleasure. And, and it's been such a pleasure talking to both of you. And I really appreciate your time to, to talk to me and, and to talk to our listeners. And we'll make sure to link to everything. And thank you so much. Very good. It's a pleasure being on here. Thanks for having us yeah. on the show, Leah. Likewise. Thank you, Leah. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to The Investigation Game. For more information on any of the topics brought up on this show, visit WorkmanForensics.com. If you enjoyed our show, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. You can also connect with us on any social media platform by searching Workman Forensics. If you have any questions or topic ideas, please email us at podcast at WorkmanForensics.com. Thank you.